Some of you have seen this, some of you have not. The latest Time magazine, I thought it was interesting, has a cross on it and it says, The Generation That Forgot God. And then it says, The baby boom goes back to church and church will never be the same. And it's actually a pretty good article, but it talks about different people's views of God and where they end up. And I thought you'd like to hear part of it, since not all of you have gotten it. One example says, Back in the early 1960s, when cars were big and hair was short, and families that prayed together stayed together, the Walkecks said grace before meals and went to Mass every single morning. Emil and Kathleen sent their nine children to the local parochial schools in Placentia, California, and on Sunday mornings at St. Joseph's, the family took up two pews. And then one by one, the children set off on their spiritual travels, and the process perfectly charted the journeys of their generation. Emil Jr., now 45, and Edward, 32, dropped out of church and stayed out altogether. John, 43, was married on a cliff overlooking Laguna Beach, divorced and returned to the Catholic Church, saying, maybe the traditional way of doing things isn't so bad. Joe, 41, returned to the fold after marrying a Ukrainian. Mary, 40, married a lapsed Methodist and now worships God's creation in her own unstructured fashion. Rosie, 38, drifted into the Hindu influence of Self-Realization Fellowship. Chris, 34, picked Unitarianism, quite a family, isn't it, which offers some of Christianity's morality without its dogma. Teresa, 36, spent five years exploring the higher power in a 12-step self-help program. The article goes on to say, Americans who leave religious institutions do not necessarily abandon the religious faith. A third believe in reincarnation, ghosts, and astrology. See, they're putting it all kind of together. The God of their understanding is not necessarily the personal, all-powerful, all-knowing deity of orthodoxy. Nor is the Jesus affirmed by the baby boomers necessarily the Son of God and the unique Savior of humanity. The very last quote of this article intrigues me. Listen carefully. Many of those who have rediscovered church-going may be ultimately short-changed. If the focus of their faith seems subtly to change from the glorification of God to the gratification of man. That was the danger that the children of Israel were facing as they were going through the wilderness, about to enter the promised land. They would see a plethora of systems and gods before them, and they would be tempted to turn in the prosperity of the land, not to the God who gave them the land, but to these other systems or false gods. God said to the children of Israel, I'm bringing you into a land flowing with milk and honey. But God knew that the milk and honey would never satisfy them. Materialism never does. Andrew Carnegie, the famous millionaire, said, Millionaires seldom smile. And the temptation for the children of Israel is in their prosperity of milk and honey to forget the Lord their God. And so... In Exodus chapter 20, which we turn today, 
God gives the ten words, the Decalogue, the rules, the principles that help fulfill. And that's how you should see them. These are principles that were meant to help fulfill the children of Israel. Ten major areas of their life. God wanted them to live it up. And the only way to live it up is to be in right relationship with Him and with other people. And so we have these principles that are timely. I know that people don't like rules, but think about it. Guys, what would the Super Bowl be like without rules? What would it be like to get a bunch of people just sort of running around doing their own thing? Now, I know some of you think that some teams do that in the Super Bowl. Well, we need rules. You say, I don't like rules. Well, you might want to move to Somalia. I hear that there are no rules. There's no government. It's complete anarchy. And people do whatever they want. We need those rules. Now, as we said last week, the commandments are divided in the sense that the first part speak about our relationship to God, the first four commandments, and the last six deal with our relationship to man, our responsibility to man. God wants two basic things. Love God and love each other. That's what Jesus said, hang all the law and the prophets. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. At first you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Before you can live right with other men, you have to live right with God. So those commandments are dealt with first. You might want to view your life on two planes, a vertical plane and a horizontal plane. The vertical plane, my relationship with God. The horizontal plane, everybody else. There's a fixed access on those two planes. If your relationship with God is off balance, that throws everything else off balance. If your relationship with God is on target, those other relationships seem to fall and be aligned as God would have them to become aligned. But first things first, and thus the first commandment. As you look at the first commandment, which is really in verse 3, verses 1 and 2 are an introduction to it, we see that God wants worship exclusively. He doesn't like competition. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. I love what Corrie ten Boom, who survived the Nazi concentration camp, said. She said, don't bother to give God instructions. Just report for duty. Just report for duty. And so we report to God for duty this morning. Lord, we belong to you. What do you have for us? The first commandment, keep God in first place. You shall have no other gods before you. Now you might want to look at three areas this morning. And uh, as I said, the first couple verses are an introduction to verse 3. And basically, God gives His command, but He says, this is why you ought to keep this command. Number one, because of who I am. Number two, because what I have done. Number three, then, this is what I want you to do. So we have God's claim, this is who I am. God's care for the children of Israel, this is what I've done. And then God's commandment. This is what you are to do. First of all, God's claim. I am the Lord your God. Please notice that the commandments begin with a simple declaration. I am God. They don't say, first of all, believe in God. Thou shalt not be an atheist. But simply, I am the Lord your God. There is this built-in assumption 
that you will believe in God. Did you know that none of the writers of the Bible ever sought to prove the existence of God? They assumed that people know that. And God never sets out to prove Himself, just to present Himself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I am the Lord your God. There's a simple reason for that. David said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This is not written to fools. It's written to God's kids, those that he redeemed. Knowing that they know that there's God, doesn't prove, just presents himself. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Literally put, the fool says deep in his heart, no God. The idea is, I don't want to have anything to do with God. There might be a God, but he won't rule my life. It's only the fool who says, I don't need God's rules. I don't need God's principles. I'll do it my own way. But you see, you can never break God's laws. You can violate them, and you'll get broken. But you never break His laws. They're fixed. They're steadfast. Whether you believe it or not, He still is the Lord God who brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and we shall have no other gods before Him. Say, yeah, but wait a minute. You can't prove that God exists. You're right. I can't prove that God exists. I can show you evidence that I think is pretty overwhelming that say God, it says God exists, but I can't prove it as an empiricist would say prove, but you can't prove God doesn't exist. I, I love the conversation that the atheist had with the Quaker, and the Quaker was preaching the gospel, and the atheist butted in and said, Have you ever seen God? No. Have you ever felt God? No, I haven't. Have you ever smelt God, handled God? No. Well, how do you know that God exists? The Quaker simply replied, Hast thou seen thy brain? And sir, hast thou smelt thy brain? Then how dost thou know that thou even hast a brain? You see, God is beyond your finite reasoning. You can philosophize all day long, but you're still a minuscule, peewee, finite person like me, and God is infinite. He transcends that. When Job was trying to figure out his suffering, God said, Can you by searching find out God? The Apostle Paul declared, How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways are past finding out. So it doesn't begin, believe in God, but simply, I am the Lord your God. Because every man has a God. Every man worships something, someone, some God. Cicero said, there's a seed of religion within every man. He noted that to be true. You say, well, if that's true, if man is sort of built with this religious worshiping tendency, why then are there so many disagreements, so many different conclusions, so many different styles of faiths and religion? Paul tells us exactly why that is. In Romans 1, he said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men, listen, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Man has suppressed the knowledge God gave him. 
You have to deliberately plant a lie within a child's heart to get that child to not believe in God. It seems the children I've been around, even when they're raised in avowed non-Christian homes, ungodly homes, that that child, his heart or her heart is so tender, it's a natural instinct for that child to believe that God exists. And that's the real issue is our relationship to God. And folks, you'll never be at rest till you settle that issue. You can never take the other commandments, I'm going to live uprightly and I'm going to love... You can't do that till you settle the first issue, your relationship with God. Augustine said, Lord, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and our souls shall not be at rest till we find our rest in Thee. The danger for us who are believers is that we leave that place of priority. The children of Israel did. In Jeremiah chapter 2, after the children of Israel had been in the land for some time, God said, My people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Number two, they have dug out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. If you turn from the living God, who alone can satisfy and quench your thirst, to any other God, any other system, and we'll discover what a few of those are this morning, You will never be satisfied. You will always be thirsty. My people have committed two evils. Now, when God says, verse 2, I am the Lord your God, the Hebrew is Yahweh Elokah. G. Campbell Morgan tells us that Yahweh comes from three Hebrew words that are roughly translated, He that was, He that is, and He that will be, the self-existent one. He exists all by himself. He didn't need anybody else. He's not accountable or responsible to anybody else. He exists alone all by himself. That's who I am. This is my claim. And I'm staking my claim with my name, Yahweh Eloka. When Moses was out in the wilderness tending his father-in-law Jethro's sheep, and he saw that bush burning, and it wasn't consumed, and the bush said, Hey, you, come here. He took off his sandals and God spoke to him through the bush. Moses gave God four excuses why he shouldn't be the deliverer. I can't talk. I can't do this. I can't sing. I can't dance. No, I'm just kidding. But he gave four excuses why he couldn't be the deliverer. God finally commissioned him and said, go for it. Then he said, look, if if I go, who am I going to say sent me? I'm talking to a bush. That's bad enough. I've got to have a name. Who sent me? God said, I am that I am. When they ask you who sent you, say, I am sent you. All right. And so he went to the children of Israel and he said, The Lord, I am, has sent me to you to be your deliverer. That's God's character. He is the self-existent one. It's interesting that Jesus himself used the same terminology to apply to himself. He said to the Pharisees, the Jews, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and he was glad. The Pharisees said, you're not even 50 years old yet, and you say you've seen Abraham? Jesus said, verily I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to kill him. Because he used the same sacred name translated in Greek, Ego Emi, I am that I am, the eternal God. So this is who I am, first of all. Secondly, this is what I have done for you, God's care. 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This week as I was studying this text, I was trying to find how many times the scripture refers to God delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt. I quit because there are so many of them. It seems that the deliverance out of Egypt is the hinge of Jewish history. Every time the children of Israel are to remember some great event, it's this event. Their deliverance, their salvation from bondage. Even if it happened thousands of years ago. If you go to Passover this Saturday night, some of you will hear that over and over again. God brought us out of Egypt and the deliverance as seen in the Passover is the hinge of Jewish history. I'm the Lord God, Yahweh Eloka. This is what I have done for you. I've delivered you out of Egypt with great power. And when God would speak this commandment to the children of Israel, it would make an impact. Because you see, the children of Israel had been slaves for 400 years. They had been beaten. They had been abused. At the same time, they were in the midst of hundreds of gods that the Egyptians worshipped, all false gods. And you remember how the children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt? First, God had a little fight, a little confrontation with all of the false gods of Egypt, you remember. Kind of a battle of the gods. And God won. And in declaring, I'm the Lord God who delivered you out of Egypt, he's comparing himself also to the false gods of the Egyptian worship. As if to say, children of Israel, remember when you were slaves, beaten, humiliated? Remember all the gods that you had around you? Did Ra, the sun god, ever help you? Did Heka, the frog goddess princess, ever help you? Did Apis, the bull, whom the Egyptians called upon daily, did they, that ever help you? Now, I delivered you with a strong arm. I delivered you out of the house of bondage, out of Egypt. He gets them to look back. I hear every now and then that it's bad policy to look backwards in your life. Don't look back. Just look ahead. Well, yes, it's true. You should forget the things that are behind and press forward to the things which are before. But listen... It's healthy to look back as a frame of reference, to remember where you've come, what you were like before you came to Christ, what God has done for you already, because it gives you a lot of assurance for the present and for the future. Hey, I took you out of Egypt. I'm your God. I claim you as my own. This is what I've done for you. God must have something better in store for them in the future. So we look to the past, not as a hitching post, but as a guidepost so that we can go forward. Now, finally, the commandment, verse 3. Look at it. You, that's them and us, you shall have no other gods before me. God says, here's my claim, this is who I am. Here's my care, this is what I've done. Here's my commandment, this is what I want you to do. You shall have no other gods before me. Better translation, you shall have no other gods besides me. That's the idea. The idea isn't, look, I'm God and you can do whatever you want. Just put me in the front of the line of all the other gods that you have. Don't put any of them before me. Just put me first and then do whatever you want. The idea is, if you bring in any other gods into your life, it's an insult to me because I'm the only true God. I'm Yahweh Eloka. I stand alone. I'm self-existent. I delivered you out of Egypt in the midst of all of the false gods. You shall have no other gods besides me. If you were to look back at Israel's history, you'd see why God gave this very important first commandment. These Israelites, 
I think, like all people, were given to the temptation of curiosity and looking around to see what other options are available spiritually. And they were about to go into a land called Canaan. Canaan was filled with gods. And every time the children of Israel would take over a city or a community, they would spoil the town. They would also take with them all of the spoils, the materials, and they would find idols, gods. And there was the danger for the true God to be lost in the crowd as they take over these towns and villages in Canaan. When they went into Canaan, they were confronted with different religious systems. Let me explain a few of them to you because they're around today. One system is called polytheism. That is the belief in not one God, but many gods. The ancient Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Romans believed in a polytheistic base. That is, there's the God of the sky, there's the God of the clouds, the God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of the river, the God of the sea, on and on. These gods, they thought, were competing for man's worship. Of course, polytheism is still very much alive today. Hinduism. Hinduism, which is a fast-growing religion even in the West, is polytheism. You can go to India and you can see it. And I sort of look at Hinduism as a population explosion among the gods. I mean, 300 million gods that they worship. They worship rats. They worship snakes. They worship monkeys. They worship anything that moves and breathes, basically. Some of the other religions included in polytheism is Taoism, Shintoism, Confucianism, and others. When Israel went into Canaan, they were also confronted with another system called pantheism. It was also mixed in the same area of Israel. Pantheism comes from two words, pantheos, that is, everything is God. Everything is God. There's not a personal God or gods, that God and the earth and everything else is all one. It's all one. The ancient Greeks, some of the uh, latter Romans believed in pantheism. Of course, pantheism is still with us today. The New Age movement is pantheistic. You are God, I am God, we are God, everybody's God, everything is God. There is not one unique being over His creation. We're all a part of the divine thing. That's pantheistic religion. There was another religious system in Canaan called henotheism. Very popular. Henotheism taught that there were local deities, local gods over nations. So Egypt had its god or gods. One city-state in Canaan might have a god. Another city-state across the valley might have its god. These were territorial gods. There were the gods of the valleys, the gods of the mountains. When you would fight another city-state, the gods would be fighting. The weird twist to henotheism is simply this. If you were a prince of this nation and you married a princess of that nation, she's going to bring in her God. So pretty soon you're going to be polytheistic. Did this happen? Was this a threat to Israel? Oh, you betcha. Why do you think God condemned Solomon? Because he married many foreign women, bringing in with them all of the gods that added to the one true God. Became polytheistic. Or what about Ahab who married Jezebel? the Sidonian princess from Tyre who brought in Baal worship and Ashtoreth worship. 
And that was a threat to Israel because it was so appealing. The reason it was so appealing is because sex was how you worship. That's how you worship. The whole system of Baal is that reproduction, the life force of reproduction and fertility is what keeps things going. And so they would have Baal temples. Men would join themselves to quote-unquote priestesses who were prostitutes. They would have sexual intercourse. And during the intercourse, they would pray something like, Oh God, even as fertility could take place now, make my family fertile, my crops plenteous, and all my animals to grow. That's how they'd worship. That was very appealing and tempting to some of the Israelite men who were confronted with this type of system. And so God demands the best. Monotheism. One sovereign God over all. Look at it this way. We need this. We need a God like this. We need the one true sovereign God. He stands alone. You know, I've watched people in Hong Kong, in, in Japan, in China, in India, in the Philippines, bow down to little images, little stones and pieces of wood. I watched them pray to them. I can't speak their language, but I've often wanted to shout, Stop it! What good is talking to this stone going to do you? What good has it ever done you? You say, oh, but don't knock another cultural relevant thing. They're sincere. But what good does talking to an inanimate object that doesn't even represent the true God, what good will it do? It will do absolutely no good. Francis Schaeffer, an astute thinker who died several years ago, in noticing the reason why Rome and Greek fell is because of their gods. Notice what he said. The Greeks and the Romans tried to build society upon their gods. But these gods were not big enough because they were finite. They were limited. Even all their gods put together were not infinite. The gods of the Greeks were simply amplified humanity, not deity. And so Rome fell. God gave this commandment to the children of Israel for another reason. Not only because He is the only true God and He demands true worship, but He knows what's best for His people. He knows that the human heart can never be satisfied worshiping a false system. It can never be truly, truly satisfied. And so He did it for their own good. You know, worshiping a false god, look at it this way, it's like hugging a mannequin. You can hug a mannequin, but is there a response that you get back from it? Oh, but I love my mannequin. I mean, it always looks the same. But there's no response. You can even go up and buy a little doll that you pull the string and it goes, Hello, I love you. Oh, isn't that sweet? That doll loves me. No, the doll doesn't love you. Somebody who wanted your money put a little tape recording in that doll and you just decided to buy it so that you could have it for your little one. There's no response. Would you turn with me to Psalm 115 and look how David treats this. Psalm 115. I should say the psalmist because his name is not ascribed to this. Verse 1, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. 
Because of your mercy and because of your truth, why should the Gentiles say, Where now is their God? But our God is in heaven. I like this part. He does whatever He pleases. He does whatever He wants. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses they have, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't handle. They have feet, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. The psalmist is saying, don't be a fool to worship something false. They will do you no good. When you have a time of crisis, go call to your God. Oh, little idol, please help me. I'm in a crisis. Well, it can't answer back. can't move its hand to help you. can't reach in its pocket and give you money for the rent, help you out. Then he goes on to say, Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. If you call the wrong God, you get, a, you get no answer. It's sort of like when you make a phone call and you get a little recording and it says, I'm sorry. This number is no longer in use or has been disconnected. You're not going to get an adequate answer to help you out. Moreover, when you worship a false god, you become just like the god you worship. That's an important principle. Whatever you worship, you ultimately end up like. If you worship a vulgar, licentious god like Baal, you will become vulgar and licentious. If you worship a stern God, you'll become stern. If you worship a sentimental, fluffy God, that's what you'll become. If you worship the true, living, loving, all-knowing God, you won't become all-knowing, but you'll become knowledgeable and you become full of life and you become loving and you become true. You become like the God you worship. That's why Paul said, Be imitators of God as dear children. It's the right one. All right. We don't live in Canaan. We don't have the Greek pantheon around us like Paul noticed when he went to Athens. But in every generation, there is the temptation to put other gods before the true and the living God. How do you know if you're doing this? Moreover, what do you do to avoid it? A couple of things. Number one, ask questions. Number two, make choices. I'd like to offer you three questions for your consideration this morning that will help evaluate if there are other gods in your own life. Number one, it's a question regarding your thoughts. What do I find myself thinking about in quiet moments? Whatever a person's master passion is, his thoughts will end up there continually in a settled state. That's what you think of. That's for the... The book of Proverbs says, as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Sort of like a compass. Take a compass and you point it all sorts of directions, put it in your backpack, jiggle it around, but you settle it down and that needle will always point north. A person's mind is like the needle of a compass. You can think about lots of things during the day and make lots of plans in your life and have many conversations, but when you settle down, which direction does it point? What occupies your thoughts? Is it the girlfriend, the boyfriend, the job, pleasure, riches, whatever? Second question is a question regarding motives. And that is simply, who are you trying to impress? 
in all of the activities and plans that you make yourself, who is it that you're trying to impress? Now, some people say, I'm not trying to impress anybody, just me. Well, then you're your own God. And a lot of people live that way. I don't care about what anybody thinks, just what I think. They bought into the Sybil Shepherd philosophy, if you've seen her commercial. And she buys this product and does this thing and pampers herself. And she says, because I'm worth it. (laughs) And a lot of people are really taken in by themselves. Sort of like the Greek god narcissist looks in the pool and goes, what a beautiful figure, it's me. That means you are your own God. You serve yourself. You worship yourself. Then other people, even admittedly, are out to impress other people. They're people pleasers. Their whole motivation is they want to get people to like them, so they'll do almost anything to get people to like them. And that motivates them. could be the guys at the club or at the office or the gals, wherever. But Paul the Apostle, in speaking of this, said... We have been entrusted with the gospel. And even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but pleasing God who tests the hearts. First is a question of thoughts. Second, a question of motives. The third question is a question of activity. Of activity. What are you living for? What's the big goal, the big picture, the big plan, the pursuit that you are after? Some will say, well, I just want to be happy. I'll do anything it takes to be happy. That's my goal. That's my pursuit. That's a God. As this little article reminds us, that we can be shortchanged, Time magazine we just read, if instead of glorification of God, it's for gratification of self. And so what are you living for? To be noticed, to be respected, to be rich? God said to Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. David said, You, O Lord, are the portion of my inheritance and my cup forever. That's what he was living for, God. There's a great story about Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, who was the founder of a religious movement called the Moravians. They were missionaries years ago. The way that God really grabbed his heart is he was raised in a very wealthy family, and one day he was walking through a house that had this museum piece in it. There was a picture, a painting of Jesus dying on the cross. Very graphic, very detailed. That took him in. As he saw it, he moved through the crowd and he stood in front of the picture. And he saw a picture of Jesus dying on the cross and he just mused over it. And he read at the bottom the little plaque that said, This is what I have done for thee. What wilt thou do for me? And it grabbed his heart. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to serve the Lord the rest of my life. So it's a question of activity. Secondly, after asking questions, we need to make choices. We need to make choices. Classic scripture, Joshua 24. Joshua is 100 year old. He gives his last, final state of the union message. And he knows the propensity of the children of Israel to grab a hold of the false gods that are around them. And so he says... Now therefore fear the Lord, serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil for you to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river 
or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Did you know that that word house means family? He's saying, as for me and my family, I'm standing up for my family. We're going to serve the Lord. Now, this is to be applied individually, but for just a moment, men, let me have your ears. God expects you to take a stand spiritually for that wife of yours and those children. I'm as weary as you are of hearing all of the statistics of the breakup of family and this and that, but they're true, guys. They're true. And we must stand up and say, I'm going to lead this family spiritually. I'm going to make sure that that beautiful bride of mine is hearing from God, getting quiet time. I'm going to encourage her in that area. I'm going to share devotionally with my children. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What happens when a family loses its head? There's a decline. There's got to be when it loses leadership. What happens when, to a company when a corporate president fails to be corporate president? There's a decline. As the family goes, so goes the nation. We say, I can't believe this nation, this nation this, this nation that. The nation is simply a bunch of families stuck together. The reason America has put other gods before the Lord God is because the families within the nation have served other gods. And there's the need to make a stand. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for he will hate one and he will love the other. Now, once that choice is made, and most of us have made the choice, yeah, I'm going to serve God, that choice needs to be evaluated constantly because we live in a nation that has false gods. And there's that danger to be pulled in by them, and we need to constantly evaluate, is God number one in my life? God doesn't want competition. The reason is because anything else will never satisfy you. Nothing satisfies you. You're created to be a spiritual being in touch with God. Nothing else can satisfy you but the Lord God. Guaranteed. That's why this commandment is given. I'd like to close with the fine words of Max Lucado, who aptly illustrates this with this story. Mommy, I'm so thirsty, I, I want a drink. Susanna Petrosin heard her daughter's pleas, but there was nothing she could do. She and four-year-old Gaini were tra- trapped beneath the tons of collapsed concrete and steel. Besides them in the darkness lay the body of Susanna's sister-in-law, Corrine, one of the 55,000 victims of the worst earthquake in the history of Soviet Armenia. Calamity never knocks before it enters, and this time it had torn down the door. Susanna had gone to Corrine's house to try on a dress. It was December 7, 1988. At 11.30 a.m., the quake hit at 11.41. She had just removed the dress and was clad in stockings and a slip when the fifth-door apartment began to shake. Susanna grabbed her daughter, but had only taken a few steps before the floor opened up and tumbled in. Susanna, Gaini, and Corrine fell into the basement with 39-story apartment house crumbling around them. Mommy, I need a drink. Please give me something. There was nothing for Susanna to give. She was trapped flat on her back. A concrete panel 18 inches above her head had crumbled a water pipe above her shoulders that kept her from standing. Feeling around in the darkness, she found a 24-ounce jar of blackberry jam that had fallen into the basement. She gave the entire jar to her daughter to eat. It was gone by the second day. Mommy, I'm so thirsty. 
Susanna knew that she would die, but she watched her daughter to live. She found a dress, perhaps the one that she had come on to try, and she made a bed for Gaini. Though it was bitter cold, she took off her stockings and wrapped them around the child to keep her warm. But the two were trapped for eight days. Because of the darkness, Susanna lost track of time. Because of the cold, she lost the feelings in her fingers and toes. Because of her inability to move, she lost hope. I was just waiting for death, she said. She began to hallucinate. Her thoughts wandered. A merciful sleep occasionally freed her from the horror of the entombment. But the sleep would be brief. Something always awakened her. The cold, the hunger, or most often the voice of her daughter saying, Mommy, I'm thirsty. At some point in that eternal night, Susanna had an idea. She remembered a television program about an explorer in the Arctic who was dying of thirst. His comrade slashed open his hand and gave his friend his blood. I had no water, no fruit juice, no liquids. It was then I remembered I had my own blood. Her groping fingers, numb from the cold, found a piece of shattered glass. She sliced open her left index finger and gave it to her daughter to suck. The drops of blood weren't enough. Please, Mommy, some more. Cut another finger. Susanna had no idea how many times she cut herself. She only knows that if she hadn't, Gaini would have died. Her blood was her daughter's only hope. Max concludes his story, and we are very thirsty. Not thirsty for fame, possessions, passion, romance. We've drunk from these pools. They are salt water in the desert. They don't quench, they kill. We're thirsty for a clean conscience. We crave a clean slate. We yearn for a fresh start. We pray for a hand that will enter the dark cavern of our world and do for us the one thing that we cannot do for ourselves, and that is make us right again. Jesus gave his blood. That was the symbolism of the bread and wine of communion. Beyond that was the truth that if you take of my life, you'll never thirst again. The commandment, God is number one, is first, because nothing else can satisfy. You begin at the beginning. You begin with Him, you begin with the choice, and you repeatedly make that choice once you've done it. Father, we thank You. We thank You that right now we're not talking to some non-existent figment of our imagination. The true and the living God, Yahweh, the self-existent one, the truth, who hears, who speaks, and who provides. We thank you, Lord, that we become like what we worship. And I pray that as we evaluate our lives this morning, in the light of your truth, that we would come to that place asking these questions, finally making the right choice. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my life, it belongs to him. He's the only true God. Lord, if there are men and women in this place who've never made that decision this morning, I pray that they would come to Christ. And for all of us, Lord, as we evaluate, that we would make this choice again, not letting other gods come before you. In Jesus' name.